Hello, everyone, and welcome to the January 28th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd Scarin Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. Tess Visceral, Christine Cornell, and Imelda Cornavas were long-term employees of the Department of Industrial Relations. Vassero worked as a supervisor under the manager, Cora Lee, and supervised Cornell and Canovas, who were workers' compensation consultants. The two consultants had the authority to settle workers' compensation claims up to $75,000 and to select third-party vendors to handle the claims. The DIR has policies against gifts received by its employees from vendors if the gift is intended to reward the DIR employee for doing business with the gift giver. This policy was not strictly enforced until Lee became the manager in 2012. So vendors would sometimes take DIR employees to lunch, give gift cards, and bring edible treats to DIR offices. Lee reminded Visceral of the gift policy and instructed her to relay the message, but Visceral ignored her request. Visceral and the consultants continued to attend lunches and accept promotional gifts, and vendors continued to bring food to the DIR offices. Thus, Lee again reminded Visceral of the gift policy and sent her a confirming memorandum in early March 2013. A week or so later, Vissero finally held a meeting with the consultants reminding them of the gift policy and instructing them not to accept gifts from vendors. However, this did not seem to stop the gift practice, and Human Resources therefore commenced an investigation. <clears throat> Ultimately, Canovas, Cornell, and Vissero received notices of an adverse action terminating their employment for improperly accepting gifts, falsifying their statements of economic interest, falsifying timesheets, and being dishonest in their investigatory reviews. The three appealed their terminations to the State Personnel Board. The board found that the three were dishonest and that retaliation was not the primary basis for the termination as they claimed and upheld the termination as being proper. The Superior Court denied their petition for a writ of mandate, and the Court of Appeal affirmed the termination of the three in the unpublished case of Canovas versus the State Personnel Board. The Court of Appeal concluded that the administrative hearing was fundamentally fair after noting that the three appellants raised a plethora of complaints, most of which were barely coherent. Walgreens has entered into an agreement with federal prosecutors to settle Medicaid and Medicare fraud allegations in two separate civil actions brought against the national pharmacy chain. The first settlement requires Walgreens to pay $209 million to resolve allegations that it improperly billed Medicare, Medicaid, and other federal health care programs for hundreds of thousands of unnecessary insulin pens. The second settlement requires them to pay $60 million to resolve allegations that it overbilled Medicaid by charging more than its prices to the general public. $160 million of the settlement goes to the United States and $41 million to various state governments. Prosecutors claim the insulin fraud occurred through two specific Walgreens policies. First, 
the company's electronic management system prevented pharmacists from dispensing partial boxes of insulin pens even when a patient did not require that much insulin. Secondly, Walgreens used its prescription savings program to overcharge federal health care programs. In our crime report, a federal task force has arrested a Southern California attorney on narcotics distribution charges after detectives spent months following the woman and monitoring her drug sales on the Craigslist website. 36-year-old Jackie Ferrari, who is a resident of Downey, was arrested by officers from the High Intensity Drug Trafficking Area Task Force, which is directed by the DEA. The criminal complaint unsealed this week specifically charges Ferrari with one count of distributing a controlled substance. The Ferrari investigation began after a 22-year-old woman died of a fentanyl overdose and text messages on the victim's phone initially indicated she may have purchased the narcotics from attorney Ferrari. Investigators concluded that Ferrari did not sell the narcotics that led to the overdose death, but they continued to investigate her as a large-scale trafficker in opiates on the Craigslist website. A law enforcement source with a long history of purchasing narcotics from Ferrari reported that Ferrari sold the informant 50 oxycodone pills for $1,200. Ferrari subsequently sent the informant and other likely customers a text message claiming that she recently obtained a new supply of oxycodone and had other drugs available for sale. Records obtained from Craigslist showed Ferrari's long history of posting advertisements for the sale of narcotics using coded names such as Chinese white rice, which was code for China white or powdered heroin, and black rice, which is coded black tar heroin. Ferrari was released on $25,000 bail, and if convicted, she would face a statutory maximum sentence of 20 years in federal prison. Charges were filed by the Orange County District Attorney against physician Max Humberto Matos, chiropractor Jeffrey Scott Cantanzarite, and Ronald and Veronica Martin. Cantanzarite incorporated the Center for Better Health, a medical group incorporated, as a medical professional corporation. He operated medical clinics in Costa Mesa and Riverside that provided treatment to workers' compensation claimants. The Center for Better Health also operated under the name Southland Spine and Rehabilitation Medical Center, Incorporated. To comply with the laws of medical professional corporations, Cantanzarite listed himself as a 49% owner of the Center for Better Health and Southland Spine. In 2012, he promoted Max Humberto Matos, a treating physician for the Center for Better Health and Southland Spine to be its vice president, medical director, and gave him a 51% ownership, at least on paper. But prosecutors allege that Cantanzarite was the actual owner, controlling its finances and being responsible for making all substantive decisions. Cantanzarite employed Ronald Lee Martin and Veronica Martin through their company, 
priority one health resources to run the marketing department of the organization. The organization's allegedly also contracted to pay Grupo Medical Legal LA and subsequently Medical Legal Network Incorporated $1,000 for each payment patient which it could bill workers' compensation insurers. It typically paid Grupo Medical LA, that's Grupo MedLegal LA, and MedLegal Network Incorporated $4,000 a week for four patient referrals. The defendants also contracted to pay Providence Scheduling for each patient and typically paid Providence Scheduling $10,000 to $15,000 every 45 days for patient referrals. Altogether, Cantanzarite paid Grupo Medical Legal LA more than $92,000 and MedLegal Network Incorporated more than $1,300,000 for unlawful patient referrals. Indictments have unsealed against eight people accused of operating an international conspiracy to defraud the California workers' compensation system of more than $123 million. In 2017, the Riverside and San Bernardino District Attorney's offices began their investigation into Blue Oak Medical Group. And after hearing six weeks of testimony, a Riverside County grand jury handed down indictments this January against eight defendants. The indictments named Kenneth Amadio, 60 years old of Agura Hills, Rosa Bernal, 46 of Covina, Shannon Devane, 41 of Downey, and others of illegal kickbacks. Two of the defendants, 60-year-old Kenneth Amadio, is a pharmacist, and 49-year-old Matthew Rifot of El Cajon is an attorney, and 52-year-old Lebanese national Manure Ueda is a physician whose license currently is not active. Ueda has been under indictment in Los Angeles County in a related case since 2015 and is currently a fugitive whose whereabouts are not known. The eight defendants are charged with a variety of crimes, including conspiracy, fraud, and money laundering, and sentence-enhancing white-collar crime allegations. Prosecutors say the defendants use sham clinics to take advantage of thousands of patients by prescribing nearly all of them the same high-priced cocktail of unnecessary medications, regardless of the patient's condition. Many of the medications were produced by pharmacies under the control of the defendants, and the patients often received little, if any, of the medicine they were prescribed. The defendants funneled the fraudulently obtained proceeds from the scam through a network of shell companies, ultimately sending the money to co-conspirators throughout Southern California, Europe, and the Middle East. And in regulatory news, the Medical Board of California has quietly launched investigations over the last four years into doctors who prescribed opioids to patients who, perhaps months or years later, fatally overdosed. The effort is called the Death Certificate Project and has sparked a conflict with physicians in California and beyond, in part because the doctors being investigated did not necessarily write the prescriptions leading to a death. The project is one-of-a-kind nationally, although a much more limited program is operated by the North Carolina's Medical Board. 
So far, the California board has launched investigations into the practices of about 450 physicians and referred the names of 72 nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and osteopathic physicians to their respective licensing boards. To date, the regulators have formally accused at least 23 doctors of negligent prescribing, and more accusations are expected. Many doctors said the project is leading them or their peers to refuse patients' requests for painkiller prescriptions, no matter how well documented their need. Out of fear, their practices will come under disciplinary review. The project has struck a nerve, therefore, among medical associations. The American Medical Association president and an Albuquerque, New Mexico oncologist whose cancer patients sometimes need treatment for acute pain called the project terrifying. The influential California Healthcare Foundation also has pushed back against the project, saying it could harm patients. The goal of California's program is to find doctors whose patterns of prescribing are so dangerous they may lead to patients' ultimately fatal addictions. The executive director of the Medical Board of California defended the project and said the effort has found patterns of gross negligence, incompetence, and excessive prescribing. Some consumer groups consider the board's bold effort to find overprescribing doctors not aggressive enough. Officials at the AMA noted that prescribing practices now deemed unacceptable came out of public policies years ago that compelled doctors to treat pain more aggressively for the comfort of their patients. Also, payers have measured quality of care by whether their patients answered surveys about whether their pain was well controlled. The political battle over the new ABC employment test is now heating up. The topic has been on the minds of California lawmakers, labor unions, and tech companies since April when the California Supreme Court ruled that businesses must satisfy all three guidelines of the ABC test to classify workers as contractors. In the case of Dynamax Operations West versus Superior Court, the state Supreme Court ruled that a worker can be considered a contractor only if a. The worker is free from the control and direction of their hirer in connection with the performance of the work. b. The worker performs work that is outside the usual course of the hiring entity's business. And c. The worker is customarily engaged in an independently established trade, occupation, or business. This is now known as the ABC test. The court's decision is especially concerning to tech companies like Uber, Lyft, and Instacart, whose businesses rely heavily on a revolving army of contractors. They're among a group of tech firms partnering with the State Chamber of Commerce to lobby for legislation that would loosen restrictions on who could be included as a contractor. The head of the California Chamber of Commerce said state law could override the court decision and return California to the pre-Dynamex test for employee status. Without a new law, these companies would have to abide by the court's guidelines. Uber, which has long been the largest and most influential on-demand gig company in the country, 
has always insisted that its drivers are not employees. The San Francisco-based company argues that it's not a taxi company, but rather a tech firm that creates a platform or marketplace to connect riders to independent drivers. In other words, it says its employees are the people who build its technology, not the ones who drive people around. It is the second, or B, requirement of the Dynamex ruling that poses the biggest dilemma for big gig-focused companies like Uber. Because a San Francisco-based firm is in the business of giving rides and its drivers are the ones who provide them, the company would be hard-pressed under the court's guidelines to classify those workers as anything but employees. A spokesman for the California Labor Federation said, that some companies feel like that test is going to alter their business model, and in some cases, that's true. The Federation would like to see more workers classified as employees. Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez authored AB5, a new bill that would require companies to follow the court's guidelines. But another bill, AB71, would roll back the court's Dynamax recent decision. Uber and other gig companies have taken various steps in recent years to ensure that they can continue categorizing their workers as contractors. In some cases, like New York, they have set up drivers' organizations which have less power than union organizations. This fight also places newly elected Governor Gavin Newsom in a particularly tricky position. He received campaign support from both labor and tech industries. He contends the issue should have been resolved before it went to court and has urged both sides to find common ground. He recently said his administration is even considering the creation of a committee to address the issue. And in medical news, CVS Health Corporation's Aetna and a host of other health insurers announced that they have partnered with IBM to create a blockchain network aimed at cutting costs in the healthcare industry. Big Blue is joined in this effort by Aetna, Anthem Healthcare Service Corporation, the largest customer-owned health insurance provider in the U.S., and PNC Bank. These providers combined account for close to 100 million healthcare plans. And IBM said additional members will join the health utility network in the coming months. The aim is to create an inclusive blockchain network that can benefit multiple members of the healthcare ecosystem in a highly secure shared environment. The goal is to allow the blockchain network to enable healthcare companies to build, share, and deploy solutions that drive digital transformation in the industry. The collaboration members intended to use blockchain to address a range of industry challenges, including promoting efficient claims and payment processing, to enable secure and frictionless healthcare information exchanges, and to maintain current and accurate provider directories. However, IBM is far from the only tech firm trying to leverage the immutability and transparency of blockchain for the siloed and fragmented healthcare industry. Other prominent names in blockchain healthcare include Change Healthcare, Hash Health, Guard Time, Gem, 
and simply vital to name just a few. In such a busy space, it's not surprising IBM is faced with some consortia competition. For example, in April of last year, Humana and United Health Group, two of the largest health insurers, teamed up on a blockchain pilot with data providers Quest Diagnostics, Multiplan, and Optum. Another healthcare blockchain called Proceedrex launched in November last year. It focuses on storing and sharing the credentials of medical and dental practitioners and is expected to save time and costs within the industry. Outside of healthcare, PNC Bank has been public about its blockchain activities, joining a group of banks exploring Ripple's ex-current payment system for cross-border transactions. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. We also publish a daily flash briefing on the Amazon Alexa Echo platform. Search for Workers' Compensation News on Amazon. Again, I'm Renee Foltz with Floyd, Scarin, Manukian, Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.